1: lots of us don't know what we want to be when we grow up or didn't know it can take a while for some of us to ease into life's direction but naturalist and writer scott widensall he seemed to have this internal compass that guided him to his career early in life
0: I've been interested in nature since I was a little kid, and I got hooked on birds very early. And I got hooked on bird migration on one particular day when I was 12, when my family and I visited Hawk Mountain Sanctuary in eastern Pennsylvania on this high Appalachian ridgetop along which every fall, tens of thousands of hawks and eagles and falcons migrate. The first day we went up there just happened to be one of the big migration days of the year. Cold front had come through. The winds were blowing from the northwest. It was this river of birds of prey flowing down along this long Appalachian ridge. And in the 50 years, and it was it was 50 years ago this past fall, and 50 years since then, I, I went from somebody who was an avid birder and kind of on the outside looking in in terms of migration research, to becoming more and more directly involved.
1: Now, in our last episode of The Future of Everything, we talked about songbirds, but migration and the plight of migratory birds kept coming up. They cross national borders, spending some of their time at breeding grounds while wintering in a different location, and their arduous travels seem to push the limits of physical existence. And the places where these birds live and the resources they rely on are under increasing pressure. And as global citizens, the birds have been challenging for researchers to study. Scott Widensall has spent decades studying and writing about migratory birds. He's also one of the principal investigators for the Critical Connections Project. It studies bird migration on national parklands in Alaska with the National Park Service.
0: I don't have an academic degree in science or ornithology, but, you know, in the last, particularly the last quarter century, I've gotten very involved in some groundbreaking science projects, working with a lot of friends and colleagues and collaborators, and and giving the opportunity to kind of peel back some of the mystery around this phenomenon of, of migration that's fascinated me my entire life.
1: From The Wall Street Journal, this is The Future of Everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the show, we talk with Weidensall about his latest book, A World on the Wing, The Global Odyssey of Migratory Birds. He'll talk about the special challenges of researching these birds and what we could learn from them that could help us humans. Also, how technology is racing to keep up with environmental challenges that threaten the bird's very existence. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Scott Wiedensahl, thank you so much for talking with us.
0: Sure. It's really not a problem.
1: You have spent a career writing about migratory birds and the challenges of protecting them. And I was hoping you could start off by explaining kind of from like a 10,000-foot view why it is so difficult to understand and protect these birds.
0: Migration has really been the black box of a bird's annual cycle. Um, it's the part of the year that, about which we know the least. And we also know that it's the most dangerous part of a bird's annual cycle, which makes sense if you're traveling tens of thousands of miles, crossing continents and oceans and deserts. You're going to get hit with weather systems and exhaustion and starvation. So, you know, there's so many challenges that come to bear on migratory birds because they're, they're not residents of any one place. They're residents of the whole.
1: Can you give some examples of some of the arduous migrations some species undertake?
0: The thing is, even the smallest migratory birds make remarkable migrations. I mean, ruby-throated hummingbirds, which weigh about as much as a penny, about two and a half to three grams, fly 600 miles nonstop twice a year across the Gulf of Mexico from the U.S. coast down to the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Little semi-palmated sandpipers that breed in the central Canadian Arctic take off from the northeastern coast of North America up around Nova Scotia or New Brunswick and fly 3,300 miles nonstop out across the Western Atlantic Ocean all the way to the northeastern coast of South America. And when people talk about birds, they often refer to them as natural athletes. So I always get a little bit peeved for the sake of the birds when they're compared to human athletes. I mean, that semi sandpiper's migration 3,300 miles nonstop, that's 126 consecutive marathons with no food or water or rest, during which the bird is operating at about eight or nine times its base metabolism. Compare that to a Tour de France cyclist who's operating at four or five times his base metabolism and only doing it for, you know, less than a day at a time with regular food and hydration. So what the birds are doing is just light years ahead of what any human can do.
1: You write in the book that researchers have made discoveries about migratory birds that could actually be the seeds of future breakthroughs in human health and well-being.
0: Oh, sure. I mean, because migratory birds undergo so many physiological changes in the lead up to and, and during the time that they're migrating. And many of these are things that we would love to be able to mimic in human physiology as well. You know, For example, migratory birds will dramatically increase their muscle mass prior to migration without exercise. Sign me up for that pill, please they can reorder their internal organs. You know, the bar-tailed Godwits that migrate 11 days nonstop across the Pacific Ocean, before they leave Alaska, having gained as much weight as they possibly can, they no longer need their digestive system. So in a matter of days, their internal organs shrink dramatically. On the other hand, their heart muscle increases 30 to 50%. Their chest muscles that power their flight increase by as much as 50% in mass. We know that when they're in migratory condition, many migratory birds seem to be immune to the effects of sleep deprivation. I'm an owl researcher. I would love to be immune to the effects of sleep deprivation. How they're able to undergo these physiological changes without suffering harm and to do it without exercise, to do it without any change in behavior is something that human physiologists would love to be able to figure out how to replicate in people.
1: It is so arduous, this Migration that so many species undertake. And I'm wondering, do we know why they do it? I mean, as a non-migrator, I'm kind of struggling here to understand why.
0: Because the world does not equally distribute its resources equally throughout the year. In the Northern Hemisphere, you have this enormous land area. Most land area on Earth is in the Northern Hemisphere. During the Northern summer, it's the land of milk and honey, especially for small insect-eating birds. Very long days, in fact, in some cases, north of the Arctic Circle, continuous sunlight, lots and lots of food. But come winter time, it's a much more difficult place for an insect-eating bird to live. So during the northern summer, birds migrate north, take advantage of all that sunlight, all that food, all that land. And then as the seasons change, they move back down toward the tropics. Most of our migratory songbirds here in North America winter from southern Mexico through northern Central America and across the Caribbean, a few of them down into South America. So they're changing one land of, of abundance for another land of seasonal abundance. It's worth it to make that trip. People say, well, why don't they just stay in the tropics and breed down there? Well, it's actually really hard to raise chicks successfully in the tropics there's a lot more diseases there are a lot more dangers snakes for example there's no monkeys in canada or alaska but there's lots of nest robbing monkeys down in the tropics the nesting success rate of migrant birds is much higher than the nesting success rate of resident tropical species On the other hand, the tropical species live a longer life because they're not subjected to the dangers of migration. So over the course of their lifetimes, both the migrants and the tropical resident birds produce roughly the same number of chicks, but, you know, they come at it from kind of different perspectives and and different strategies.
1: I wonder if you can talk about what the stakes are behind understanding migration
0: well, I think the thing to remember is that a huge portion of the world's birds are migratory. And unless we figure out a way to make migration safer, for them, we're gonna lose a lot of the most dramatic and epic bird phenomenon on the planet. There are ecological reasons why we don't want that to happen. Birds are critical elements of ecological functioning. But I think even just from a sense of wonder and awe, we don't wanna lose those migrations that fill us with such a profound sense of majesty. You know, the notion of a tiny little bird that weighs barely more than a wisp of air, traveling thousands of miles across deserts and oceans and jungles twice a year and coming back to the same tree in the same backyard in Michigan or the Netherlands or China, carrying the world on its back, essentially. That's what we stand to lose if we lose migration.
1: Up next, why there are still so many mysteries surrounding migratory birds, and how the changing environment could present more challenges to them and to researchers in the future.
0: Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune in to the Capital Ideas podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Each week, we bring you stock market outlooks, macroeconomic updates, and investment strategies that can help you succeed. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience about how they navigate uncertain markets. Prepare to be engaged, enlightened, and entertained by listening to the Capital Ideas Podcast today.
1: There are a lot of challenges to studying bird migration, the main issue being that researchers have been unable to follow these birds as they travel across continents and hemispheres. So scientists have been unsure about what these birds do and when. One way ornithologists traditionally studied these birds was by putting tiny metal or plastic bands around one of their legs, This is known as banding. These bands have a code of some sort, a series of numbers that researchers could reference when they find the bird in the future. But as you can probably imagine, you have to capture the same bird, read the band, and that can be quite difficult. I think, too, your book offers up lots of examples that explain and sort of spell out for people how difficult it is to study bird migration. Can you talk a little bit about how the changing scientific practices could be helping to track migratory birds?
0: I've been banding birds for, at this point, almost 40 years. And so bird banding has been tremendously important. It would be impossible to overstate its importance for our understanding of migration, but it's limited. It's extremely time-consuming. It's extremely labor-intensive. And the payoff can be very, very small. But today, because we have these highly miniaturized tracking devices like nanotags and geolocators, that allow us either to follow the bird while it's in flight, kind of in real time, or more often they act as data loggers. We download the data and we can see exactly where that bird has been at at a really high level of precision, particularly with something called um, pinpoint GPS tags, which we also use in these birds. So it's filling in the gaps that would otherwise have taken us decades or maybe even centuries to get if we were using just banding. And so we can see where the birds are going, what habitats they're using, the fact that this particular great-cheeked thrush that we tagged in Alaska is wintering in a remote area of rainforest on the southern extremity of Venezuela in one of the most pristine remote rainforests on the planet. So this bird moving from one of the most remote tundra wildernesses in the north to one of the most remote rainforest wildernesses in South America.
1: You talk in the book about uh, the mysterious qualities of migratory birds. I I liked how honest you were about that. And I wondered if you could tell us more about what we still don't know about migratory birds. Oh,
0: God. (laughs) So much. I mean, one of the big mysteries for a very long time was how they use the Earth's magnetic field to find their way. And I I took a course in in ornithology when I was in college in the 1970s. And we were taught that migratory birds had little magnetic crystals in their brain or at the base of their bill that sort of functioned like a compass. Well, it turns out those things, those little structures turn out to be not magnetic at all. They probably have more to do with the bird's immune system than anything else. But it's only been in the last couple of years that scientists have been able to figure out that birds are using a weird form of quantum physics known as quantum entanglement that actually allows them to see the earth's magnetic field as they're flying through the night sky.
1: You heard that right. Migratory birds are able to use Earth's magnetic field to guide them.
0: Do you have any idea what I would give to see the Earth's magnetic field? I mean, it must be an amazing thing. And yet, any yellow rumped warbler or house wren or western black headed grosbeak is, is able to see that as it's migrating. It must be workaday and commonplace for them, and it would be dramatic and magical for us. It comes out of equations that Einstein himself kind of disavowed. This aspect of quantum physics, he called it spooky action at a distance. And we talk about it in terms of its possible ability to create unhackable quantum computers and allow faster-than-light communication. And yet it's been operative in the eyes of migratory birds for probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years.
1: Some of the risks posed to migrating birds are man-made, And I wonder if you can give us an overview of some of those threats.
0: One of the single greatest dangers for migratory birds are lighted buildings and windows. We lose billions of birds every year to window collisions. And we're finding from big data like uh, eBird observation and weather radar that migratory birds are drawn into urban areas at night during their nocturnal migration by urban lights and they'll often get confused in cities. And so one of the most effective ways to help migratory birds is simply to turn off lights during the peak migration in the spring and the fall. And we don't have to inconvenience people for long periods of time. Radar data shows that the majority of migration passes through any given urban area over a course of just a couple of days in the spring and a couple of nights in the fall. So turning off lights during those peak periods can save the lives of many, many birds. The other really simple thing that people can do to save migratory birds, if they have a cat, please keep it inside. Cats kill between 2 and 4 billion wild birds in North America every year out of a population of maybe about 20 or 25 billion. In fact, cats kill more birds than cars, than windows, than wind turbines, than any other human-related source of mortality. And keeping the cats inside is better for the cats too.
1: You describe climate change as a major problem when it comes to migratory bird conservation. And I read this in the book and was fascinated by the changes that are underway. But I wonder if you can talk about a a few key nuances in the landscape, the timetable of migration, and even the bodies of migratory birds. I mean, how do you think future conditions, like it becoming wetter or drier in certain areas, are likely to shift or hinder migration.
0: There's so many unknowns, but birds are already changing physically because of climate change. A study from scientists in Chicago who looked at tens of thousands of bird skins from birds that have been collected over the last half century or so, these are birds that flew into windows basically in, in Chicago during their migration and died. The bodies of these birds are actually getting smaller as the climate is warming, the body size of the birds is shrinking and yet their wings are getting a little bit longer to give them a little bit more aerodynamics even with reduced muscle mass. And this is something that's also turned up in the tropics with non-migratory birds. Tropical birds are getting smaller as the climate warms. In terms of climate changes with migratory birds, one of the big issues is the changing phenology, the changing timing of the seasons. I think anybody who's been paying attention across the northern hemisphere recognizes that spring is coming earlier and earlier every year. The leaves are emerging earlier in the trees, the flowers are blooming earlier, the insects are emerging earlier. On the other hand, these birds are migrating back across thousands of miles on a genetically encoded timetable that they can't really change. They're not deciding at a conscious level when it's time to migrate. Their migration timing is based on their internal circadian rhythms, on the changing ratio of daylight and darkness. So what's happening is they're coming back on their traditional timetable, but spring's arriving earlier and earlier every year. So they're falling farther and farther out of sync with the seasons. So it's known as a phenological mismatch. When the mismatch gets too far out of sync, the connections break the food that the birds need at particular times in their life cycle is not available for them. And we've seen this happen in some parts of the world where migratory birds are coming back so late in the breeding season now that by the time their chicks hatch and are at their hungriest, the seasonal flush of insects on which they've traditionally depended has already passed. And so their chicks are no longer able to successfully feed themselves and and have a very low survival rate. We haven't really seen that across North America yet. That's been more of an issue in in Europe with birds migrating out of Africa. But we do have a problem in the central and eastern Canadian Arctic, where, because climate change does not mean uniformly warming temperatures everywhere, it's, you know, global weirding is maybe a better way of describing it. In that part of the Arctic, late winter and early spring is dramatically colder and snowier than it once was, whereas summer is dramatically warmer. And so for long-distance migrants, uh, shorebirds like Hudsonian godwits that winter at the southern tip of South America, red phalaropes that winter near the Galapagos Islands in the Pacific Ocean, by the time they migrate all the way back up to the central Canadian Arctic, they arrive all set to lay their eggs and everything's still frozen. So they have to wait and wait. And then they finally have an opportunity to lay their eggs, their chicks hatch, and then this climactic switch gets flipped and it becomes dramatically hotter. And the insects on which those chicks are going to depend emerge earlier than the chicks can use them by the time the chicks are at their hungriest there's very little for them to eat and so hudsonian godwits these um, beautiful large dramatic shorebirds with long ice pick bills some years they maybe only 5 or 6% of their chicks make it to survival so you know we are seeing changes on the ground right now that are threatening the survival of some of these migratory systems
1: You've written about the increasingly dire studies coming out year after year we see related to staggering bird losses. I'm wondering what gives you hope for these animals you so clearly admire?
0: A couple of things. First of all, the inherent resiliency of birds, nature in general, but birds in particular. If we give them half a chance, they'll come back. And in many cases, we know what we need to do. We just have to find the political will in order to do it. I'm optimistic because of the the ability we have now to understand particularly migration at a level that we never did before. I think we're getting that information just in the nick of time to start to make the kind of targeted conservation decisions that we have to make. And I'm optimistic because, frankly, there's not a whole lot of benefit in being pessimistic. If you're pessimistic, you're just going to give up. Look, in my lifetime, I've seen birds that we had written off, all but written off, like bald eagles and peregrine falcons, come surging back again. I know what birds can do if we give them the opportunity. We just have to find the wherewithal, the political muscle, the, you know, the, the willpower to make the changes that we have to make for them.
1: And that's really the upside, right? That birds are so adaptable, and it's not all doom and gloom.
0: No, that's, that's absolutely right. And you know, despite the challenges, there are places all around the world where groups are making a huge difference for migratory birds. Here in North America, one of the most exciting developments that we've seen are how indigenous communities in Canada are working with the Canadian government at the provincial and federal level to set aside millions of acres of First Nation land in new national parks and protected areas, not just for birds, obviously. and In many cases, it's to protect the cultural resources that those communities depend on. But the impact for migratory bird conservation is huge because we have hundreds of species of migratory birds that breed in the boreal forests and subarctic of Canada, where these enormous conservation efforts are, are underway.
1: Scott Weidensall, naturalist and writer. His most recent book, A World on the Wing, is being released in paperback in March of 2022. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, it's been a real pleasure, Janet. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you.
1: The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. This episode's fact checker is Catherine Seifer. Our sound designer is Sarah gibbel Our producer is Caitlin Nicholas. Kateri Yokum is The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. And I'm Janet Babin. Thank you for listening.